Welcome back to How AI Built This, the podcast dedicated to entrepreneurial and data storytelling. Uh, as always, we're brought to you by Cathcart Associates, so a huge thank you to them. Um, on today's episode, I'm speaking to Catherine Wilkes, director of Slalom, a consulting firm where Catherine was brought in to grow and lead the data analytics practice in Manchester. Um, welcome to the show. Thanks, Liam. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. Before we go, kind of jumping two feet into Slalom, let's jump back to education um actually something i always tell people we do this because no one comes from the same background but i think maybe the second or third in a row with a physics background but it just makes sense given what physicists do so um it's been quite a common kind of a physics is a big field right so it's quite a common field to, to at least have been involved in but you went to university in, in southampton before your phd in liverpool right that's correct yes Nice. Um, and actually, I've made these notes so long ago that I, I mentioned that it's kind of a relatively accepted route into data science now or yeah. data analytics now, um, but maybe not kind of 2009 time. There probably wasn't lots of people doing a PhD in physics thinking, I'm going to go work in industry in data. No, no, not at all. And uh, it, wa- it wasn't something that I, I planned uh, to end up working in data either. I did a PhD in physics thinking that I would become an academic and stay in the field. But when I started my PhD, I realised actually that wasn't really the, the path for me. No, fair enough. Um, and looking back, I suppose with, with hindsight, did you enjoy the, the PhD process? Because we've, we've had a mixed review from people when you ask about their PhD, kind of probably half and half that loved it and some that said, I'm glad it was over. Oh, no, I'm definitely not in the camp of loving it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I remember when I started it, um, I went home the first Christmas and I said to my parents, oh, this is this is horrendous. I've made a big mistake. I shouldn't be doing this PhD. And my dad said to me, OK, well, what are you going to do instead and I said, well, I don't know, uh, nothing. I'll just quit and I'll just go traveling or something. And he said, no, that, that's that's not a great idea. He said, if you can think of something better to do with your time, then quit and go and do that. Otherwise, finish the PhD and spend the time thinking about what you do want to do. So that's what I did. And so I spent the time picking up as many transferable skills as I could that would then enable me to get a job when I'd finished when I graduated from my PhD, it was a really, really tough job market out there. And it was really difficult for me to get a position. And I found myself um, competing with talent that had just come out from a bachelor's or just a master's. And I felt really um, annoyed at myself for what I felt was wasting another four years when I could have just been out earning and getting on the job work experience. But looking back now, many years later, I do see the benefit in having it. And it's really, it's it's great to um, to have that on my CV and to help credentialize myself with clients and for them to think, okay, you know, right, maybe you do know what you're talking about. There is a, a brain in that head <laughs> of yours. <laughs> I suppose the other thing, and we've not really talked about this before, but like a PhD is much more like a job than it is a degree like it's yes. it's so much closer to a proper job than it yeah. is to bachelors like yes. although people in academia get lumped into bachelor's master's phd like phd is like kind of way closer to being a full-time job 
and it does teach you although there's people will say that in academia there's not really time pressure and it's not the same as delivering for a client or for a business it's much much more like that than any other education you would get so you still would have picked all of that up in the four years that you that would set you ahead of a lot of people once you did get into that kind of that industry environment I would have thought. Absolutely. And actually, I would say it is more difficult than a, a, a job environment, particularly in the early days, because you're there working with a supervisor and you've got a massive topic to cover with no clear path ahead of you for how you're going to cover that. And it's basically, you know, here you go, go and do a project for four years or three years. You know, so the, the time management skills you have to have, the drive, discipline, enthusiasm, organisation, all of those sorts of skills, you, you just have to learn on the job. And, you know, for graduates um, or entry level talent coming to workplace nowadays, you know, that there are programmes of work to help you. You've got, you know, a people coach, you've got um, training courses, you've got all, all of these things around you to support you. Whereas on my PhD, you know, I, I didn't have any of that. So it was actually quite tough, you know, to, to carry on having that motivation, and that enthusiasm day after day. Um, yeah, no, I bet. And you also moved like away and were far away from family by the sounds of it as well. So that's yeah. another thing that is less common when you go into industry. Like normally you're around people that you know or like you've moved with someone or you're close to your family. Like moving from down south to, to Liverpool in, in this example is quite drastic as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was tough, um, you know, and I just I felt really alone I think during my PhD because you know you I was just doing the research just me and then catching up with my supervisor once a week um which is really different to how I work uh, you know in the in the working environment now where the vast majority of my work is, is done in teams yeah no exactly and it's it's a good point in terms of like the, the differences because even bachelor's masters is often group projects group lectures group like I can't remember what other thing you do at university is anymore called, but the smaller classes, tutorials, that's it. And you mentioned you thought doing the PhD that academic life might be for you in terms of like postdoc lecturer, like going down that route. Yeah. When you were doing the PhD, it just became apparent that that wasn't where you wanted to to spend the next X amount of years. Yes, <laughs> very apparent, very quickly. Um, I think what I hadn't realised um, when I did my degree in my master's was that you're learning a little bit about a lot in your field mm. so you know my field theoretical particle physics you know but I was learning so many aspects of it and you know 12 weeks at a time or however long the, the the semester course was whereas when you do the PhD it's one topic that you're doing for four years it's just it's it's mind-blowing that you can get into that amount of detail on something and I realized that actually I didn't want to be working to that level of, of detail on one particular yeah. topic and that I enjoy more variety and also a more strategic view and finally to feel that what I'm doing has more day-to-day -day impact, tangible impact. The rest of your career makes a lot of sense when you say those things because yeah. that's perfect for consulting, right? But, exactly. Um, yeah, it's wild when you go to uni and do like a bachelor's and you yeah, like you said, you spend 12 weeks on like a few things and you think you know loads about it and then you don't really, to flip that into four years of one thing, you have to really love it 
to like yeah. keep going and keep going and keep going. And a lot of people have said as well that post PhD life, the the uncertainty is huge as well. So you stay at University of Liverpool for four years and then you don't get renewed and the only job is in St Andrews, like or whatever. Like it's quite you have to be pretty open and flexible at all times and not really care about kind of long-term security in, in a way. So yeah, that that, that must be tough. Um, yeah, that put me off it as well. Um, and I could see people that were, you know, a few years ahead of me that had finished their PhD and were doing postdocs, um, you know, and some of them had maybe got two, three postdocs under their belt and then been unable to secure another one. And they were, you know, much better researchers than I was. And I thought, no, I, I this is this is not the path that I want to to go down. Yeah. Definitely. No, it, it makes sense, and it's definitely a lifestyle for some people and not for others. I suppose the same can be said for kind of consultancies and startups and all these other different walks of life that you can go into. People just have a preference, right? Yeah. Um, obviously, you went into industry. We've mentioned that before. You started as a kind of data consultant and then senior data consultant. I think for was it Detica? Is that right? That's right. Yeah, Detica. Yeah, part but of the systems now. Were they then? No, no. So when I was offered the job, they weren't. And then by the time I then joined a number of months later, they were. Um, they'd been acquired, but there wasn't really much um, evidence of that other than things started to be rebranded. And instead of just saying Detica, it's a BAE Systems Detica. And then by the time I left um, two years later, then it was becoming more, more closely um, integrated with the BAE Systems world. As a data consultant, what were you doing in that world? So I started off working in defence, which actually, at the time, it was not my first choice or even a choice. <laughs> it, was where, <laughs> it was where I was put. <laughs> um, I remember I wanted to do business consulting in. Um, com- I wanted to do business consulting in the commercial sector. And um, then when I started, they said, you're going to be doing data consulting in the defence sector. And I thought, "Mm, no, that's not what I want. I thought, well, I don't want to be, you know, uh, a pain on my first day. So I'll just go with it. Um, And actually, it was brilliant. Um, So I'm really pleased I, I did that. And uh, so the sorts of projects I did, a really fascinating project when I first joined working with British Army in their manpower planning department. So um, what individuals they need with what skills at what point, Um, because manpower planning for the army is quite tricky because it's not... um, like a, a commercial business where if you need someone with certain skills, you can just go and recruit. You know, everything is training from the ground up. So they need to be really, really accurate with their forecasting and what they're going to need 5, 10, 15 years down the line so they can be bringing in that talent and, and training it in the right way. Um, so help them with data quality um, and data management. Um, and then I worked on a, another um, great piece of work for another part of the Ministry of Defence, um, which was helping them to support um, to select a strategic tool set uh, for, for the tools they were going to use for databases, analytics, business intelligence. Um, that was great. And then nice. after a little bit, then I then did move into commercial. Um, and then I started working in revenue assurance um, for a telco. So where they uh, programming, where they would uh, be leaking revenue. So, for example, if they have a special introductory offer and then they forget to cancel that with a the customer, they're then missing out on revenue that they should uh, be receiving. 
so it was great it was you know Dedica was a fantastic company to work for um and uh, had loads of variety um lots of travel but great teams to, to work with as well and you know with the army thing i do a lot of thinking out loud on this podcast um you said about forecasting like 10 15 years ahead and stuff yeah. like that do they also have to like do they have to assume conflict at some point because that would i assume change like manpower needs if it went from kind of relative peace times to some like world war three outbreak like th- that must be hard to forecast for yeah yeah it's, it's factored in and i mean they have fantastic people doing it who are hugely experienced um and whilst it obviously can't always be accurate it, it is definitely a factor that they consider so yeah you spent a couple of years there doing loads of cool stuff by the sounds of it yeah uh, it's awesome and then you moved into the world of uh pwc kind of audit uh and even now, it's probably fair that people listening to the show might not hear the name PwC and like scream data. Uh, but you went in and kind of helped basically set up what data meant for PwC in the North. Is that fair? Uh, no, so I, they already had a data team in the North. In fact, they had a few. Um, so the, the data team that I joined was in assurance, um, which is the audit practice. So um, the vast majority of the data work I did at that point had an assurance angle to it. So for example, if um, a client was performing a data migration and they needed to know that the data had been migrated correctly, you know, that's got an assurance stamp on it. So that would be the sort of project we'd be involved in. We would also do some analytics to support colleagues in the audit practice to, to, to help them to pinpoint their auditing and to, to de-risk their audits. Um, so they had a data team. So I joined that data team um, and then I led the, the data team in Manchester and then across the north as well, further down in my career. Yeah, because you ended up kind of chief operating officer for data analytics across assurance, which is obviously a pretty massive role. But I, I suppose also when you think about it, that auditing and assurance kind of equals lots of data by design. Yes. Like if you're auditing the kind of people that PwC work with, it's like it's masses of data, I assume. Yes, 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 it is. It is. And, you know, PwC and the other um, big four and other auditing firms as well have, um, you know, really become hugely data-driven in their approach to auditing because, you know, clearly if you're using a sampling approach and just taking a few transactions and tying them through, it's not going to be as thorough an audit as using a data-driven approach where you're downloading all of the data from the client system and then profiling it for high-risk areas. And it must be easier nowadays to an extent to audit companies in terms of like, making sure everything's above board and you can use like clever visualization tools yeah. and present that back to either PwC internally, to clients, to government, whatever it might be. It must be so much easier now than like, I mean, obviously before all these tools are available, like you said, just taking random samples and, and hoping for the best. Yeah, yeah, it is definitely. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a move now towards more real-time auditing as well, instead of going in, you know, on an annual basis. And, yeah. and doing the audit that makes um, sense yeah yeah so and I mean companies are expecting it as well you know they it's, it's they're getting a much more thorough audit which you know at the end of the day that's what most companies want yeah yeah no exactly and and also PwC I don't know if this is some of the stuff you were involved in but sometimes when a client is asking for help on kind of auditing and assurance you can almost 
help them with getting their data up to scratch and kind of providing some of your team to kind of get them on the journey to them just be more data driven for the future as well is that right yeah we did we did find that as well so for example if we had uh, you know a, a client that was struggling to download the right data from their system in order to support the audit then you know we we could then potentially you know help them with that um, and help them to become more data driven although some of the work we could do was limited because of audit independence yeah, that's true. And like I said, I mean, you ended up spending uh, kind of six, seven years with PwC and yeah. finishing in that that very kind of high level role. Compared to to Deticam BAE, was this more client facing traditional consultancy piece rather than some of the kind of technical delivery you were doing before, or was it still was it quite similar in a lot of ways? No, it was quite similar. The COO role that I had. Um, one of the, my final roles at PwC, that was slightly different um, because that was a split role where I was then only um, about half my time was spending um, being client facing and the other half was on the COO side of things. But in terms of the the work, uh, it, it was quite similar between Detica and, and PwC that I've always been client facing and, and enjoyed being client facing as well. Yeah, is, it, is there part of it that like, you like solving their problems, you like understanding different businesses and coming up with solutions and like doing lots of different things rather than just like, I don't know, you could be like head of data at a small company where you're just working on a product and that's just not your, that that wouldn't get you up in the morning. Yeah, I like the variety. Um, I like meeting new people. I like seeing the impact and the change that our work can have and and learning new things so I think if I were head of data at a company you know I would enjoy that for a short time where I was getting up to speed learning about the company um, you know meeting everybody trying to enact some change and then once I'd got over that initial point I think that I would then be looking for the next challenge so that's why I like consulting and of course it keeps your technical skills fresh as well because you know, the data world, as you know, changes so quickly that, you know, if you're not out there doing plant facing work, it can be difficult to um, stay up to date with all the, the trends. Yeah, I imagine you will have to, no matter what level of role you you have at Slalom, at PwC, at Detica, if you're sitting in front of a client and you're proposing they need to do X with data visualization or X with their data analytics, you will need to know the kind of, the suppliers, the the kind of new people in the industry who are doing cool stuff with their tooling, and you'll just you just need to know that as part of your job. As you can't just become very good at one thing. Yeah, I mean, you can have I mean, you have T shaped people, don't you, that have a breadth, and then you know they have a deep technical, um, you know, depth in in one or two areas. Yeah. I guess the danger of that is then if what you specialize in goes out of fashion, um, then you could be caught short. Yeah, um, so I we've seen that quite a lot in, it's not really, it's a little bit in data, but I mean, when I first started doing the, the recruitment of data people and kind of overall like ERP, CRM systems, lots of our work was around kind of traditional Oracle databases, mm-hmm. um, lots of JD Edwards ERP stuff. Genuinely couldn't tell you the last time I saw any CV with JD Edwards on it or a client asking for it. I know it kind of got rolled into other stuff, but you just don't you don't get that anymore so like you said if you become deeply rooted into like 
a specific part of Oracle and then they mothball it and go cloud-based, you'll have to learn pretty quick or you'll be a bit stuck. It's interesting. We were having this exact conversation yesterday um, because at Slalom, we're very proud to say um, that, you know, because we are very forward-thinking, modern technology consultancy you know that we don't do a lot of work with the the traditional mega vendors like oracle you know if if you've got a client that needs those sorts of skills then we're not going to be the best fit for them and we are happy to say that because we're happy to do what we do and do it well but we like using the uh, latest technologies yeah no it makes sense and i think some of the like you said the kind of mega vendors they seem to be catching up a little bit and providing some kind of competitive tooling but yeah there's so many out there now that it's kind of like it'll be hard to catch up in some cases um, and we're talking about slalom so like you said technical consultancy june 2019 and i messed this up on the last podcast in terms of dates june 2019 wasn't covid time was it that was just that was normal easy rosy time yeah it may feel like it to you because you've, <laughs> you've forgotten what life was like before uh, the pandemic no so I, we had a show last week and i said to someone that they joined somewhere in 2020 height of covid and they were like no no it wasn't and i was like i'm sure it was <laughs> yeah so back when uh, yeah everything was stressful for another other reasons you joined slalom as their data and analytics director yeah. um why slalom i mean I, I, and is there if anyone doesn't know what what the company does and, and their background feel free to to fill in the blanks Yes. So I was approached to join um, Slalom when I worked for PwC. And uh, my initial reaction was, oh, I haven't heard of you before. Who are you? What do you do? And I think that's quite a common reaction in in the UK. Um, So Slalom is a a modern consultancy um, that focuses on strategy, uh, transformation and technology. So we like to employ people that are are thinkers in terms of thinking about what a a strategic direction should be for for a client, uh, that are are doers in terms of transforming. Um, So they like to enact change in businesses. They like to disrupt businesses. Um, And then are also builders as well. So we have a a huge product engineering practice. We have data teams, cloud, DevOps and security. So we employ people that are really technically minded, that want to work with um, the latest technologies, that want to work with clients that really, really want to change. We like to describe ourselves as mighty but nimble. So we're actually part of a a much bigger organisation. So we're 11,000 people worldwide. Um, Yeah, really big. Yeah, and we've got a huge footprint in the States. Um, We've got offices in Japan, in Australia, in the UK, in Canada, and we're expanding into Europe next year as well. So we, we have a mighty power behind us, but we're nimble because we are at the moment 60 people in Manchester and, um, you know, where I'm based in Manchester, we like to work with great local Manchester businesses. And so the relationship that we want to have with our local clients is that that local feel. You know, kids are going to the same school. Um, you know, I was actually in a meeting with somebody earlier today and they they live in the same village as me. <laughs> you know, yes. they were we were sat there on on um, on teams and they're a mile away from from me. You know, but um, you just show out the window for the rest of the meeting. Well, yeah, I said, well, why don't we just go to the coffee shop? <laughs> but you know, that's that's the feeling that that we like to have. So, so that's sort of some of the things that that makes Slalom different, and that's what attracted me to join Slalom. And 
you said it's 60 people, so it's, I mean, it's relatively quick growth given you joined them in 2019 and mm-hmm. we've chucked in a global pandemic. So to mm-hmm. go from a handful to 60 is a lot. Um, what type of customers are, are Slalom going for? Like, is it multinationals? Is it any company that wants to make a difference with kind of data and analytics? Um, do, do you have like an ideal kind of client persona? So the ideal client persona for us is somebody that wants to work with a consultancy that is going to challenge them and it is going to help them to change we like to go in and to be a disruptor in a nice way (laughs) you know we are we are not a consultancy that you know or or people that is going to come in and just sort of put a rubber stamp on something and say yeah sure that's okay you know we're we're going to challenge people um we don't tend to work with clients that say they want to change but don't act as though they want to change how, how do you weed that out in a kind of pre-sales pre-engagement type meeting like is that quite tricky or because of the experience of the team now you kind of get a decent feeling for it I think we get a decent feeling for it and also we are really quite um honest with our approach you know I mentioned earlier about you know that we we don't work with with the mega vendors for example so, you know, we will say to a client when we're thinking about working with them or they're thinking about working with us, you know, that this is this is what we are. This is what we do. This is the way we like to work. Um, if you think that's going to fit with what you're after, then that is absolutely great. And let's see if we can have a partnership here. If you don't, then that's absolutely fine because we treat all of our clients, you know, as a, as a true par- partnership. So we're, and, not, we're not just here to, to sell sell work. Yeah. And do you find that... You'd... Do you pick up work from people that have maybe been burnt before by, we don't have to name names, large consultancy who promise lots and two years down the line, nothing's been delivered? Like, Are those some of the customers that the likes of Slalom and some of these other modern consultancies can kind of swoop in and almost save the day a little bit because they actually get stuff done and are very honest in their approach rather than, like you said, kind of selling for selling's sake? Yes, that does, definitely does sometimes happen. We tend to... Um, build our business through the relationships that we have so you know I mentioned before around our 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 local model of having a large number of of offices and then those people that work in those those office you know living within um that that city region or that town region um and mixing with clients in that region so you know we will work for clients for potentially a number of years as they work for different companies, because, you know, a client's worked with us, um, you know, in their role at, at a certain company, and they've moved on somewhere else. And they say, Oh, actually, I had a good experience with with Slalom before. Why don't yeah, we really have a conversation about this? So for us, it's far more around the relationships that that we have. And of course, you know, a lot of people that, for example, I used to work with um, in consultancy, then go in house and, and have roles um, for a company. Yeah, so I mean, it's very similar. It's very similar to like the job that I do. Like, if yeah. a client moves on and you've done a good job for them, they will pick up the phone and ask you to help them again. And yes. and people we've worked with have ended up inside tech companies. And again, we've got on well with them. So yeah, it's, it's, it's I, I yeah I can get how that would work. No office in Scotland yet, though. When's that coming? Oh, <laughs> it's on the roadmap. It's being discussed. <laughs> Edinburgh, Edinburgh, I hope. Everyone seems to be coming up here from up north. We've got loads of new uh, businesses from from Manchester Leeds way. Uh, We do love talking about building teams on the show. You all have done loads of this now with with your time at PwC and also at Slalom. Anything that you've kind of learned 
or kind of try and stick to when you're building kind of high performing data teams and also with a consulting angle on it as well, which adds a kind of different layer. Yes. So what I have learned is that it's easy to hire people that are similar to you and it's difficult to hire people that are different to you, but it is much, much better um, for the performance of a team to hire people that are different to you. How do you do it? So um, to start with, you need to have some really, really robust um, and fair and transparent hiring processes because, you know, our natural bias is just to navigate towards people that are similar to us. Yeah. So you really have to keep questioning yourself and keeping yourself honest to, to looking at people and giving everybody a fair, fair chance. Um, we have a fantastic talent acquisition team at Slalom who do a great job in um, searching for talent in loads and loads of different places because often, uh, you know, people may not be looking for a role or may not feel they have the self-confidence to put themselves out there to try and approach, you know, for a, for a new role. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons why our talent team at Slalom generally proactively reaches out to people. Um, because we find that that we can then source um, candidates who are perhaps slightly different in that way. Yeah. And then, you know, once you've then, you know, got that talent on, on board, it's around embracing a little bit of challenge in the team and letting that run. You know, I'm someone that naturally doesn't like conflict and it makes me feel quite uncomfortable. But actually, you know, particularly since I've been at Slalom, I've learned that actually that, that conflict is a really natural part of developing a high-performing team. And actually yeah. sometimes letting that play out a little bit in, in the right environment can be really beneficial. It's, it's kind of in, encouraging people who they don't necessarily have the same opinion, but just yeah. getting it across in the right way. So it's not an argument, yes. but it's... You can you can come to a conclusion without everyone falling out. Essentially, yes, yes, exactly, exactly. And you know, sometimes you know, you 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 will put your view across. The other people or parties will put their views across, and you think, oh, not sure about that. Hmm. You know, and then you sleep on it. Next day, you think, you know what? You've really got a point there. And it, I mean, that's how you you develop a high performing team is is just to do to do that that and put yourself in that uncomfortable position. And how do you, this is quite specific to consulting into slalom, but it's still interesting all the same, but how do you get people who aren't maybe natural, people that would naturally challenge a client? And also, I suppose, the flip side of that, people who just always want to challenge a client. Like, How do you hone that in the right way to make sure that you are partnering with clients, but like you said, you will happily go in and challenge them and, and kind of try and change their thinking as well? Is that a skill you can teach? It's a skill you can teach in terms of doing it in in um, the best way that you can. I think one of the ways that we're able to do that at Slalom is because we have people that are um, deep, deep technical experts, you know, national, global level SMEs in a particular area. So yeah. they have the the backing of their technical capability, you know, in, in order to appropriately challenge a client. So. Yeah. You know, when you have that and you can pinpoint some um, evidence um, to back up your challenge, that really helps. And then what we are really careful to do 
is to focus on the positives and the outcomes and what could be different uh, if they did something differently. You know, we, do, we don't want to just go in and say, you know, this is wrong, this is not optimised, you know, you're not doing a good job here. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's all around, have you thought about the fact that if you did why, then this would enable this, and then you can help them to measure that and see that change, and then they'll yeah. begin to trust you, and then that will just drive drive a positive relationship. And then once you've built a diverse team, it's not just an echo chamber of the same people and um, you've got them kind of firing on all cylinders. How do you go about keeping them, especially in, in the current market, which, I mean, everyone's getting bored of everyone saying how busy the market is, but like it is genuinely bananas. Like we keep saying it's going to calm down and it's just not. So like, how do you go about keeping really good people? Yeah, it's, I mean, the market's absolutely nuts, isn't it? We go about keeping people by treating them really well. So we look after our people. At Slalom, you know, we think about the power of people and our people are the most important thing to us. And I know a lot of companies say that, but, we, you know, we... They, they do, actually, but I, I don't know we, what you mean. It, it, you know, but it is actually true in Slalom. You know, for example, we don't talk about resources when we're thinking about a project. These are our people. You know, we talk about Catherine or John or Jane or whoever it is. And, you know, is this going to be a good pro- a project that's a good fit for their skills? Is it going to stretch them? Is it going to work with their family life? You know, do yeah. they want to be commuting to the other side of Manchester a project because they've got you know the young family at home yeah. and if that's going to have a negative impact on them then we won't take that project you know you know another example is we were lucky you know that we made the decision at the beginning of the pandemic that we were not going to make any redundancies and we've been able to to keep true to that promise so you know, the company really really looked after us um in uncertain times and that then makes um people that work for slalom feel feel valued and respected and trusted and then you know they, they want to stay and of course you know sometimes people want to go that's that's totally cool and yeah that's, uh, that's just that's just kind of the job market i suppose but yeah no i mean the resources thing is really interesting because it's not it's not exactly the same but um i know of someone recently that moved on from a big consultancy um not slalom may i add uh that essentially just got chucked on a client site for 18 months yeah just him and that client and loved the project loved the client and eventually the client just said well do you want to just come work for us Mm -hmm. and he didn't have any communication with his like for lack of a better word parent company he didn't speak to really anybody on a weekly daily basis and he was like well do you know what stuff yeah i'm going to join that company so that's where it becomes like oh well he's a resource on that client doing that project making us x amount per day happy days as opposed to yeah treating someone like well Catherine's on that project let's make sure she's doing good make sure she's happy yeah. is the commute is the commute okay like all those things because you're doing all this with a, a relatively young family as well aren't you I am yes I've got a three-year-old and a 10-month-old oh exciting yeah it must be fun trying to like yeah managing that and clients and internal team and still being able to do other things it must be pretty manic it is, but I like it that way. <laughs> yeah, it's it's um, yeah. I think if you're if you're smart with your time, it's it's totally doable. And I have a very supportive husband as well, which really really helps. And of course, you know, slalom are, are really supportive. You know, there's obviously times when the kids are ill and get excluded from nursery or whatever it is, and you know, the firm are, are totally cool about that. And as are our clients as well, because we are, you know, as I mentioned earlier 
we are we are quite you know particular about the type of clients that we work with because we want to have that sort of relationship where you can say to a client look you know what my my son's had to come home from nursery today i can't do this meeting and you know yeah. that you've got that relationship with the client that they will understand yeah they're not just going to sack like sack off slalom because they couldn't speak to you when they wanted to yeah um yeah no that makes sense um, I think working from home as well. I mean, different for your, your eldest, but um, I've got a six-month-old and being able to work from home and juggle all of that has been much easier. And being able yeah. to do things like this and speak to clients on on video rather than traveling down all the time, like it's been, that's definitely made it easier in the beginning, um, yeah. which is good. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a game changer really because even, you know, with my son, he was three in September. So at the beginning of the pandemic, he was what, 18 months old, I think. Yeah. So... So all he's really known is mummy and daddy at home, even though yeah. before before then, one of us would be off in the morning, dropping him off, you know, the other one would pick him up in the evening. We were, you know, juggling it that way. And so, you know, if we ever did go back to five days a week in an office somewhere, which I can't see we will, you know, he would have a shock because he is used to both of us being home for bath time, um, yeah. both of us being there in the morning. And, you know, your daughter, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah, yeah. You know, I expect she will feel that because it will be all she's ever known, really. Yeah, I almost missed bath time the other day because the buses were all running really late, and I was so <laughs> angry about it. I was like, "There's <laughs> one bath time," and I was just yeah. like, "I can't believe I'm going to miss this." So yeah, no, it is really good. Um, they've actually said that uh, went way off topic now, but apparently, a lot of people that got like pets in lockdown will be in a much worse spot because all they've ever known is their owners being in the house oh, all day, yeah. And then so- suddenly you leave for nine hours down office and like just leave the dog in the living room and hope for the best. So yeah, that may be interesting. Um, and then just to kind of finish off, you are pretty active in the kind of data scene in Manchester. I think you I mean you've done a few things where you're speaking at events, slalom of kind of promoted a few and you've done a lot of work kind of in terms of being a, a bit of a kind of champion for women in tech but I think I saw something on your LinkedIn feel free to fill in the blanks again but Slalom really kind of support that right? Absolutely yeah yeah it's it's something that we're really really passionate about and actually uh, next year we are proud sponsors of the Reframe Women in Tech conference that's happening in Manchester in in March it's going to be a fantastic um, conference it's something that's that's so important to us to sponsor you know women within technology and and other minorities as well. What does that event look at like what's the like what's the focus of it? So the focus of it is just around giving women and men, because it's open, it's open to anybody, a glimpse of what a career in technology is like, what people are working on, and what the, what the future could look like. So it's it's um, the conference is organised by Tech Returners, who are a great oh, organisation yeah. who support um, individuals to either return to a career in technology or to create a a career in technology after a leave of absence from work. And, you know, for example, at the conference, they have childcare arrangements. So if you've got young children and you wouldn't be able to attend the conference because of childcare commitments, they will sort that for you. So they're really trying to make this sort of upskilling accessible to all. That's awesome. Um, You said that's in March, right? Yes, that's right. Yes. When uh, by the time we get this posted out into kind of mid January, I'll dig that out and see if there's if there's any more information on our tickets or whatever, and I'll I'll link it up to this because that'd be really cool for people to to check out. That'd be fantastic. It's eleventh eleventh of March. 
Nice one. Yeah, I mean, that's scary how soon that is. Amazing. Um, and, and I suppose you being involved in the data scene, even with two small children, very busy job. Is it just something that, again, comes natural that you want to be networking, you want to be speaking to people, you want to keep abreast of what's going on? Is that is that just part and parcel for you? Yes, it is now. But I would say that it hasn't always been something that's come naturally to me. Um, you know, the networking word. That's the worst word in the world. <laughs> yeah, actually. you know, it still makes me have a slightly heavy heart of, you know, the fear of walking into the room with um, a load of people all in little huddles and thinking, oh, my gosh, they all know each other. And I don't know anyone. How am I going to break into a conversation? How am I going to exit a conversation? So it's something that over the years I have learned to really relax and um, and get into. And, uh, you know, the more you do it, the easier it gets. And, you know, chances are now when I go to these sorts of things, I will know people there. And it's a lovely, lovely feeling. Um, yeah. To, to not have that fear when you when you go into the the room. Um, I don't know. I've done loads of it, and I still have that fear. <laughs> I mean, right. You learn to live with it, don't you? Yeah, I just got, I went down to the peak event in Manchester a couple of weeks ago, and I hadn't mm. seen anyone for eighteen months, and there was loads of people I knew, and I was just kind of like, I walked into this massive room, and I was like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. And then at the end of the day, I've never been so tired in my life from yeah. just like suddenly speaking to people face to face because I can't just close the laptop and like lie down for a bit um it was like conversation to conversation to conversation I was just so tired yeah, uh, yeah. But, but it was very nice to actually speak to people to be fair yeah it is it is something that's important to me and and particularly as a as a female in tech it's important to me that um others see me in my role and can potentially think, okay, I can see how you can have a career in, in tech as a female and that it is enjoyable and you can balance it with a family as well if that's, um, you know, where, where you are in your life. Yeah, 100%. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate the time. And like I said, we'll, we'll link it up to the to the event in March and anything else slalom related, um, happily share and, and pick around as well. It seems like a really cool company to work for. Yes, it is. What what I can do is we have what we call our turtle doc. Um, it's an interactive document online that sets out a little bit about what we're about and some of the cool project work that we've delivered. So I can send you the link to that, Liam, and then you can post that as well. So if anyone's interested in, in finding out more, then they can have a look at that doc. Amazing. Thank you so much. You're welcome.